Hello, and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Today, we're on podcast number 14. So, got three topics today that I'm going to discuss. Um, first of all, uh, I was going through some of my old paperwork from being a mechanic for the U.S. Uh, national team, and I found um, an old uh, training camp uh, and early season diary from 1993. So, that was my first year uh with um the u.s cycling federation so it's kind of a fun little little thing to to find um so i got that i'm going to talk a little bit about the e-bike revolution love it or hate it and then uh, we're going to do a uh, little bit out of the camp of granola book we haven't done for a long time but it's kind of little uh, two-page story i found that um kind of goes through uh, campy's view of um of the discovery of America and the assault from Japan um, is the title of the the piece and the assault from Japan of course is Shimano and just as a reminder uh, I did do a five part uh, story on the Shimano story and that is on podcasts five through nine if you want to check that out so let's go ahead and get started and uh, we'll take you back in time to the year is 1993, and I had just gotten the job with the U.S. national team at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. So here is the training camp and early season diary that I found. Uh, Saturday, February 20th, 1993, up at 7.50 a.m. at the Olympic Training Center at 8.15. Waited for Bonnie until 10. Bonnie was the swanier at the time. Uh, left the Olympic Training Center with Neil, he was another Swanier for the team, and Bonnie at 10.15. We drove 435 miles to Socorro, New Mexico, and stayed the night. Sunday, February 21st, 1993, up at 7.05. Ate breakfast on the road again at 8.18. On the way, we missed the Highway 80 turnoff and used the emergency turnaround. Uh, scared Neil and Bonnie. Um, as a side note, um, we were driving in three different vehicles, I believe. I had a, a Jeep with a trailer with a motorcycle on it, and they each were driving a van, I believe. So we arrived at Bisbee, Arizona at about 2.30. Dro- drove about 326 miles today, unloaded vehicles, left for Tucson to the airport at 8 to pick up Marty, Jemison, Chan McRae. Went to the airport at 10.50. Yuri and Craig's flight was delayed until 12.30. Waited and returned to Bisbee. Chan, Chan drove on the way back. He drove like a madman. Then Neil drove for a while and hit some kind of animal. Arrived back at Bisbee at 2.30 a.m. in the morning and went to sleep. Monday, February 22nd, 1993. Up at 8.40, breakfast at 9 o'clock with Craig... He was uh, one of the coaches, Neil, Bonnie, and Marty. Yuri arrived at 9.35. Yuri Manis, of course, was the director. Uh, Arranged equipment and work area, left for the airport at 12.30. First eight riders arrived at 2 o'clock. And then I wait for Irv and John McKinley until 4.20. Arrived back at Bisbee at 6.30 p.m., ate dinner, and helped riders assemble bikes after dinner. Bedtime, 10.15. Tuesday, February 23rd, up at 7.30, breakfast at 7.50. Uh, Locked up trailer, pumped, 
pumped up wheels and helped riders prepare for 9 a.m. ride. Just before ride, George Hencappy's headset was loose, tightened it while group took off. George caught them, but Neil and I didn't. Find them after two wrong turns 30 minutes later. A 100-mile ride, one flat, many P brake. George's front derailleur wasn't tight enough and slipped and bent. I fixed it good enough to finish the ride. Finished the ride at 2.20, ate lunch at 2.25, worked on bikes from 2.45 until 6.30. Dinner at 6.30, went for a walk after, bed at 10.10. Wednesday, February 24th, up at 7.30, breakfast at 7.50. Prepared for, left at 9 a.m., prepared for the ride. One 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 flat, one handlebar adjustment on the move, 107-mile ride, finished at 2.40 and ate lunch. And as a side note, I'm in a follow vehicle. I'm not doing these rides. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you got that, but just want to clarify. Um, ride finished at 2.40 and then ate lunch. Replaced spoke for Marty and finished George's cleat riser for new Shimano Dura-A shoes and pedals. Took measurements on a few bikes and went to bed at 10.15. Thursday, February 25th, up at 7.30, no breakfast, left for ride at 9 o'clock, 120-mile ride, three flats, back at 3.30, lunch at 4 o'clock, relaxed, dinner at 7, rented a movie, La Femme Nikita, went to bed at 10.50. Friday, February 26th, day off, up at 10 o'clock, washed in vacuum van, did my laundry, Lunch at 1, went for a 25-mile ride, relaxed, then dinner at 6. Put chain on John McKinley's bike, went out for a beer, stock exchange, St. Elmo's, and Cooper, Copper, Copper Queen. Uh, got buzzed, back to sleep at 11.15. Saturday, February 27th, up at 7.30, breakfast at 7.40, left for a ride at 9. One broken spoke, 75-mile ride, back at 1 o'clock. Fixed broken spokes on two wheels, one flat, and glued a sew-up tire. Lunch at 2.15, new bars on Jeff Evanshine's bike. Adjust front brake. Dinner at 6, bed at 10.30. Sunday, February 28th, up at 7.50. Ride at 9 o'clock, rainy, cold ride. One flat, cut short, 60 miles. Lunch at 1 o'clock, nap and measured bikes. Meeting at 6, dinner at 6.30, movie in bed at 10.30. Monday, March 1st, up at 8.30, worked on motorcycle, helped riders prepare for ride, hooked up trailer, left for airport at 12.15 to pick up the girls, returned at 4.15, dinner at 6.30, worked on bikes, after bed. Tuesday, March 2nd, off day, up at 8.30, gave Tom his stuff, Tom Jow was the women's team mechanic, um, gave, gave Tom his stuff for the women's camp. Worked on Tim Q's bike, did laundry, hung out with John McKinley, lunch at 1.15, went up the road to the women's hotel, hung out with Tom and Henny. Henny Top was the women's coach, drove women to town, then got extra stuff from Tom that Doug sent, with, sent out with them. Worked on Chan's bike, then Marty's. Dinner at 6.30, read for a few hours to bed at 10.30. Wednesday, March 3rd, up at 7.45, gassed up the van, left for a ride at 9.08. I was in the van by myself, first two hours, no flats, mellow ride, then 25 miles of dirt and rocks. 27 flats, including one van flat, changed flat at the Circle K in Tombstone. Everyone had 
at least one flat, 105 mile ride, returned at three o'clock, lunch at 3.30, fixed flats and glued tubulars until dinner at 6.30, finished fixing flats one hour after dinner, then exchanged Jeep rack for van rack to make room for six bikes on the van for the Yuma and Redlands races. Filled van with gas for Thursday at nine. Thursday, March 4th, up at 7.40, prepared for ride, left at 9.05. Changed George's saddle and post. One flat, second loop, motor pace Chan, Kevin, George, Don McKinley, and Yuri. Pace Chan and Kevin up to the others at 50 miles an hour. Finished 100-mile ride at 2.45, lunch at 3.30. Started packing and moving extra stuff up to women's camp. Out to dinner with Neil at 6.20, back at 7.05, move more stuff up to the women's and back at 9.45, bed at, I'm not sure what time it was because I didn't fill it in. Um, I'm guessing it was 10. Uh, Friday, March 5th, up at 6.30, loaded six bikes and riders bags for departure from Bisbee to Yuma. Left at 9.05 with Yuri, Nathan, Kevin, Marty, Chan, Fred, Yuri. Drove 185 miles. Uh, Yuri drove 185 miles, and I drove 130. Arrived at Loman's house, the Loman's house in Yuma at 2.15. Riders and Yuri did a ride, and I ate lunch, dinner at 6.30, worked on bikes, then bed at 10 o'clock. Saturday, March 6th, up at 7.25, loaded wheels, tools, and spare bike for short trip to the circuit race. Start eight miles away. Fixed a few last-minute problems at start area. Did neutral support for a large from a large van, changed six wheels, Davis Finney, two flats, ruined specialized tri-spoke wheels, Ron Kiefel, one, Chan took fourth, Marty was tenth, returned to Lowman's and washed bikes and worked on Marty's bike and Nathan's shifter unit until 5.15. Dinner then, bed at 10 o'clock. Sunday, March 7th, up at 7.30, left at 8 for Criterium, following following Yuri. Yuri races at 9.40, takes third in the Masters 45+. plus. Back to Lomans at 10 o'clock, lunch at 11. Left for the race at 12.15, following Marty, Nathan, Chan, Kevin, Yuri, and Fred. Race starts at 2.30, Coors Light wins Stephen Swart. Chan takes second, fast race, no flats. Marty was 18th, left at 5 o'clock, cleaned the bikes, then went to dinner, bed at 11.15. Monday, March 8th, up at 7.30, packed and ate breakfast. Departed at 9.15, arrived in Redlands at 1 o'clock. Checked into the good night inn, took a nap. And went for a ride with Yuri, Chan, Fred, Marty, Fred, and Marty at 4:30. Returned at 6:15. Dinner at 8:30. Returned at 9 o'clock. Called mom. Bed at 11:30. Tuesday, March 9th, up at 7:35. Breakfast with team, then went for a ride. Stayed back at the hotel and did some errands for Yuri. Then sat out by the pool. Relaxing day. Dinner at 7. Bed at 11:30. Wednesday, March 10th, up at 7.37, breakfast with the team. Team went for a ride. Yuri and I packed up and checked check in at the two private homes. Then I went to the airport to pick up George Hincapi and Chris Carlson. Nightmare night. Changed chain rings 53s to 54s and 155. Installed computers and dork bars, aero bars. Bed at 12.45. Up at 7.20. Thursday, March 11th, up at 7.20, breakfast, one banana. Then to FedEx with Chris Carlson to pick up his TT bike at 8.30. Returned and assembled the TT bike. Had to switch cranks, 
pain in the ass project, drove the TT course, and arrived at 11.15. Smooth day at the time trial. Chan was 15th. Chris Carlson was 22nd. Back to the first house at 3.20. Changed things back. Took off aero bars. 30-minute break, then back to work. Back to dinner. Back to work. Dinner at 8.15. Back to second house at 9.15. Loaded van for road race. Bed at... Not sure what time I went to bed, because that's when this little diary ends so a couple notes on this diary uh, that kind of brought back some memories one of them was on wednesday march 10th when i talked about changing out chain rings and putting uh, aero bars on bikes for the uh, the time trial the first day of redlands i made a huge mistake here i kept uh the i let the bikes stay where the riders were staying let them keep their bikes at the guest houses they were at so i had bikes and riders in two different houses and i was staying in a hotel so three different locations. And looking back on that now, um, the way I should have done that, I should have just kept all the bikes with me so that I could work on them all at once. Because that night, that was the nightmare night, I drove back and forth working on bikes and bringing stuff back and forth between houses. Um, the houses weren't super far apart, but far enough to be a complete pain. Um, so I would definitely change that. And then I also, the other thing that kind of brought back some, some uh, some memories was going to FedEx to pick up Chris Carlson's time trial bike. Um, and I remember putting it together and switching, switching cranks on it. And it was just such a pain in the butt. I, I hate time trial bikes. Um, I, I hate tri bikes. Uh, that whole, uh, scene, um, is really, uh, kind of a pain in the ass to work on if you've ever had to work on any of them. Um, and especially when you have a, uh, a stressed out uh, bike racer looking over your shoulder as you do it um, even adds an extra layer of fun so anyway that's the diary from the fed the fed training camp and the early season races um, it's kind of fun to have found that so um, so maybe we will move on now to our next story which is out of the camp ignola book and it's um, like i said i did a f- five part uh story on the shimano story um how they got started and and uh how they broke into europe um from uh, japan us and then to europe and uh so the the campagnola book kind of has a couple pages that kind of go over the kind of the campagnola view of um of their discovery campagnola's discovery of america and the assault from japan okay so here we go so in 1981 the company, Campagnola, had moved to a larger plant in the industrial zone of Via della Chimica with an investment of 10 billion lira. The new establishment was a jewel equipped with the most sophisticated tools to design and build the most advanced products. When technology becomes emotion was the slogan that accompanied every novelty bearing the Campagnola logo. Meanwhile, something of great importance was growing in another part of the world. It would prove critical in the, in, in the history of Campagnola. For a long time, for a long while, Japan had been witnessing the progressive and steady growth of a company, Shimano, which year after year had been eliminating all of its domestic competitors. Maeda, Tribunino, Dynamic, Sanko, all brands that had satisfied the demand for the market in continuous and explosive explosive growth. In 1921, Shozaburo Shimano had founded near Osaka, the Shimano Ironworks for the production of freewheels 
and 10 years later had begun to export them. In 1956, he had produced his first derailleur and in 1961 had arrived in America, attracting wonder and international toy and cycle show in New York. Four years later, Shimano appeared at the Bicycle Salon in Milan, studying Europe, studying Campagnola. Tulio and Shozaburo met, shook hands, and established a relationship of mutual respect that was destined to last the rest of their lifetimes. In 1970, Shimano, already an unquestioned leader on the Japanese market, had diversified and enlarged its activity, extending its products to such sectors as fishing and golf. As for bicycles, it had begun setting its sights on the European market, and in 1972 opened its first office in Dusseldorf, Germany. Most of all, however, Shimano intended to conquer the United States. The so-called baby boom generation in the post-war United States presented a demographic blessed with well-being and drawn to the rapid acquisition of consumer goods, from cameras to radios to high-fidelity stereos. It was also a generation with a special interest in physical exercise, an interest masterfully supported by the shoe and clothing industry. This same interest led many customers to buy a bicycle. In 1970, there were 7 million bicycles in the United States, the United States, of which 5 million were for children. There were only 200,000 lightweight racing bicycles with derailleurs. In only two years, the modest number multiplied 40 times, rising close to 8 million. In 1974, more bicycles were sold in the United States than automobiles. That's kind of cool. And in part because of the oil crisis in 1973, a consequence of the ongoing Arab-Israeli conflict. Campagnola, Simplex, and Huray had not foreseen this boom in bicycles in the United States and thus were unable to meet the demand. On the other hand, Shimano and Maeda had foreseen it all and were ready to successfully accommodate it. They provided the products that were of good quality of a price far below that of their European competitors. Ahead of everyone else, the Japanese had also understood that they could save money by manufacturing the bicycles outside Japan. In 1973, Shimano had set itself up in Singapore and later built plants in China and Taiwan, as did Maeda. For Hirei and Simplex, the news was grim. The Japanese parts were equal in quality and lower in price. Campagnola seemed, still seemed unbeatable for its lightweight and indestructibility of its com components, but the high price of those parts often decisive in the in the moment of purchase as a consequence while in 1973 shimano and held only 25 percent of the american market by 1978 they dominated it with fully with fully 90 percent and the american press began to make comparisons especially when the galloping inflation of 1976 doubled the price of bikes a suntour cyclone derailleur by maeda cost 32 dollars a shimano crane 40 dollars while a Hure Jubilee or Campagnola Nouveau record cost $80. The substantial difference in terms of the Italian brand was called the Campagnola tax, the price of beauty. Many fans paid it happily, eager to have the superior product in terms of quality, but most buyers thought first of their pocketbook. 
Then in 1983, the mountain bike craze, which had begun in the, in the 1970s, truly exploded in the United States. Once again, Shimano took over the market. Having conquered America and aware of its power, Shimano began its final assault on Europe, the land of Campagnola. And in Vincenza, in that very same 1983, on February 1st, Tullio died at the age of 82 after several months of illness. The family company passed into the hands of his son, Valentino. So a couple things to note on that story. One is that um, if you want to know how Shimano was able to eventually uh, dominate the U.S. market, um, going back and listening to those podcasts five through nine, um, where I kind of go through the whole history of Shimano, will kind of give you a lot of insight as to how Shimano actually did that. Um, and the other thing is, when I was growing up, uh, when it came to road bikes, the shop I worked at, Campagnola was considered it. Um, Shimano was was good stuff, um, but Shimano uh, Campagnola was the as one of my uh, ex coworkers said, they were uh, Campagnola parts were were pieces of art. Um, it was like artwork on a bicycle. Um, so that's kind of the, the view that a lot of people had of it. For, you know, paying that eighty dollars versus uh, forty dollars was. Um, was worth it to a lot of people. So Campagnola um, will probably never die because there are enough of us who love it that much um, that look at it as a work of art and a functional bicycle part that um, it's a company that's going to be around forever, I think. So for my last little story, I'd like to uh, talk about e-bikes, uh, the e-bike revolution as it is. Um, so e-bikes, you love them or you hate them, right? Um, but there's one thing that's true. They're here to stay. Uh, it's sad for me because I don't enjoy working on them. Um, maybe uh, because the riders of these machines sometimes annoy me, but also make me sad. Uh, in, you know, you see little kids driving electric uh, small cars and motorcycles, not even pedaling. Um, and to me, that's just strange. And in kind of some ways, it's kind of wrong. Um, so self-generated forward motion is what cycling is to me. It's a floating forward sensation like nothing else. Um, this isn't even considering uh, the cornering, the steep climbs with views, the sensational high-speed descents. Um, when I was uh, maybe five, my mom took uh, my sister and I to a playground to learn how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. Uh, kind of remember my bike my bike was a red and white single speed it had solid tires um i don't remember if it was a 12 or a 16 inch wheel um could have even been one of those in between sizes the 18 or whatever um, or 14 i don't i don't remember don't have the bike anymore obviously um i remember my mom helped me to get started but i put my foot down and stopped and uh when i did that she went over to help uh my sister who was also trying to ride without training wheels um so while she ran over to my sister, I figured I'd just give it a shot. So I started pedaling and balancing, and I realized that if I kept pedaling, then balancing was a lot easier. So I kind of got it right away. I was—I remember I was gliding. Um, to me, it was, it was like magic, um, and it still is today for me, riding uh, self-propelled forward motion. Um, that's bicycling to me. So some uh, dislike e-bikes, uh, some dislike of e-bikes comes uh, from our egos as cyclists. And it's important that we recognize that. Um, 
having a form of a bicycle uh, pass us uh, with a rider we are probably physically stronger than evokes an ego response that uh, is filled with negative emotions towards the rider of the e-bike. Um, I can recall the first time I was passed by an e-bike. Um, I am not a super fast cyclist, but I am also not slow. I was commuting home after work. Uh, my ride was about 15 miles. Um, and at about mile seven, going up a steep uh, but short hill, a guy on a mountain bike with a rear rack passed me easily. Um, so I was on my light speed with Campy Record 11 speed, uh, a light and fast bike. Uh, he smiled as he passed me. Um, at first, I didn't realize it was an e-bike. Um, I caught up to him once the road flattened out. However, I, I couldn't, couldn't stay on his wheel. He eventually pulled away from me with ease. That's when I realized that it was an e-bike with pedal assist. Every time he'd pedal, um, he would surge away from me. When he'd stop pedaling, I would gain on him. Now, uh, there, are th there are different classes of e-bikes, um, as most of us know, um, now know, especially if you work in the shop, in a shop that sells them. So here's kind of, if you don't know, here's a simple kind of explanation um, of the different classes of e-bikes. So there's class one, which um, does, will top out at about 20 miles an hour. Um, it's pedal assist only. Um, it has no assist uh, without pedaling. Uh, class two is uh, tops out at 20 miles an hour. It has throttle and pedal assist and can be ridden without pedaling using the throttle. Class three is, is tops out at 28 miles an hour and is pedal assist with an optional uh, throttle. And class four is basically an electric uh, moped. Now, um, laws and regulations for e-bikes vary by states. Um, just keep that in mind. And those are very simple definitions of, uh, of e-bikes. So as a bicycle mechanic, um, I must work on these machines. And for the most part, it doesn't make me happy. Um, we had to purchase a special bike stand with a motorized lift um, just to work on these things. Some of, the, some of these bikes uh, weigh as much as 70 pounds plus. Um, so e-bikes allow almost anyone, um, no matter their fitness level, to get out and ride, um, twist a throttle, and move forward. Um, to stay employed, I must accept this technology as I did with shock forks, rear suspension, disc brakes, squeaky V-brakes, fatter tires, tubeless tires, wired cyclometers with cadence, electronic shifting, SIS shifting, and other technology introduced throughout my career as a bicycle mechanic although none of these were as hard to swallow as e-bikes. So with that said, here are two examples of people riding e-bikes. They are on opposite ends of the e-bike spectrum. One I love, one I dislike. So number one, one day on my ride to work, I caught up with two older gentlemen at a traffic light stop, probably in their late 70s. Um, on identical Pinarello e-road bikes, beautiful bikes. One look at these guys and I knew they had been life, lifelong cyclists. As we get older, we suffer more on the climbs and it takes some of the fun out of riding. So in this case, e-bikes became a part of a natural progression of a lifelong cyclist. They can keep riding these class one machines for a long time and that makes me happy. 
Happy for them, happy for me, future me, because I'm not there yet. Happy for the industry I, most, I, I mostly love, but sometimes, just sometimes hate. To make clear, industry hate is not bicycle hate. Number two, another day on my ride to work and up ahead in my bicycle lane was a guy on an electric mountain bike heading right at me. No helmet on a throttle e-bike, not even pedaling, dangerously riding into traffic, not cool at all. While these are extremes of both ends of the e-bike revolution, it's important to note that the space in between these examples is filled with every possible rider and e-bike combo imaginable. It becomes especially important for me to treat each e-bike and its rider individually and accept the good with the bad even when it can be really ugly. So that is our show for this time. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or comments or concerns, you can email me at the bicycle mechanics podcast at gmail.com until next time. Enjoy your day.